Section 10, Army Leading. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. We have seen Mr. Booth beginning on the spot, now marked with a stone, near the site of the Vine public house, since happily pulled down, the site being turned into a public garden, on July 5th, 1865, scrambling through the first six years' difficulties until he marched the beginnings of an army of saved drunkards, infidels, and sinners into a people's market, transformed into a public hall and headquarters. He called all that the Christian mission, with only a slowly dawning consciousness that it was an army for six years more. But he was leading it on in humble dependence upon God, with increasing speed and force. He was really hindered by many things, amongst them his own ministerial habits of thought and plan. That nothing lasting could be achieved without system and organization he had always seen, but he had never yet known a formation equal to that of some of the churches around him, which depended upon more or less skilled preachers and a complete network of elected assemblies. For all purposes of conquest, he had got preachers enough out of the public houses, but he could not imagine their holding regular congregations or developing the work without having years for study and just such plans as the churches had established. Hence, when he wanted leaders for the enlargement of the work, he advertised for them in Methodist or other publications. He secured some excellent, well-meaning men, too, but in almost every instance, they proved to be slower than the troops they were supposed to lead, and a kind of ecclesiastical organization wrapped them all around with a sort of Saul's armor, in which fighting the heathen was unthinkable. He had got, by the testimony, as we have seen, of impartial observers, such a force as was unparalleled in extent, unsectarian in character, and a standing rebuke to the apathy of Christians. But how was he to go further afield with it? He had not a leader ready for its extension outside London. In 1873, Mrs. Booth, however, could not be content without doing something, at least for a season, in England's great naval base, Portsmouth, and after that in the sister arsenal city of Chatham. The force of new converts she gathered in each town must needs be led by somebody, and in each case the general sent men of proved ability to manufacture preachers of their own fighting type. After having led missions in those towns, they went and did likewise in two of the great manufacturing cities of the north. But their first achievements had led the general to venture upon sending out others, of much less ability, to smaller communities, where they were not less successful than the first two. Already another great difficulty had been solved, for it had been found that congregations of workmen gathered in the provincial towns would give collections generally large enough to defray the local expenses. Thus were cleared away not only two of the main blocks in the path of progress, but all need or desire for the officialdom 
that had already begun to grow threateningly stiff. After a while, writes the general, the work began to spread and show wonderful promise, and then, when everything was looking like progress, a new trouble arose. It came about in this wise. Some of the evangelists, whom I had engaged to assist me, rose up and wanted to convert our mission into a regular church, with a committee of management and all that sort of thing. They wanted to settle down in quietness. I wanted to go forward at all costs, but I was not to be defeated or turned from the object on which my heart was set in this fashion. So I called them together and addressing them said, My comrades, the formation of another church is not my aim. There are plenty of churches. I want to make an army. Those among you who are willing to help me to realize my purpose can stay with me. Those who do not must separate from me, and I will help them to find situations elsewhere. They, one and all, chose to stand by the general, for those who were really set upon the formation of deliberative assemblies had already left us. This was in February 1877, and in the following July the last Christian Mission Conference met to celebrate the abandonment of the entire system that conference represented, and to assure the general that he had got a real fighting army to lead. It was only at the end of 1878, during which year the stations, which we now call corps, had increased from 30 to 80, that in a brief description of the work we call the mission, a Salvation Army, but the very name helped us to increase the speed of our advance. The rapidity with which the general selected and sent out his officers reminds one constantly of the stories of the gospel. One who became one of his foremost helpers had formerly been a notorious sinner, and had indeed only been converted a fortnight when because he already showed such splendid qualities, he was sent by a girl officer to the general with the strongest recommendation for acceptance. It was arranged for him to speak with the general on the platform after a meeting. The general, who had no doubt observed him during the evening, looked at him for a moment and then said, "'You ought to do something for God with those eyes. Good night.' I had never had such a shock, says the commissioner, as he now is. If that's being accepted for the work, I said to myself, what next, I wonder? But sure enough, in another three weeks' time, he was called out from his place of employment by a staff officer who asked him, can you be ready to go to M next Monday? And he went. The young man had been a devotee of billiards but had become interested in the army by seeing two of our special speakers, one a very short officer, the other a giant doctor from Whitechapel, who weighed some 334 pounds, wheeled up a steep hill in a pig cart to a great open-air meeting. After listening many times without yielding, he was startled out of his coolness by a large hall in which he attended a night of prayer being burned to the ground the next day. 
The next evening, with one of his companions, he went to the penitent form and found the mercy of God. When the general was at all in doubt about a candidate for officership, he would often draw such a one out by means of the most discouraging remarks. To one who had gone expecting a hearty welcome, he said, Well, what good do you think you'll be? The general's eldest son being present, desiring to help her, remarked upon the high commendation her officers gave her. He wished to send her off directly to a corps, but the general, still uncertain, said, Now send her to Emma, which opened the way for her immediately to leave her business and go to the newly opened training home for women under his daughter's direction. A similar home for young men, under the present chief of the staff, Commissioner Howard, provided means to take those about whose fitness for the work there was any doubt and give them a training prior to sending them on to the field. In 1880, the general addressed the Wesleyan Methodist Conference of the United Kingdom. That conference is one of the most powerful church assemblies in the world directing, as it does, the entire forces of its church within the British Empire, and consequently influencing very largely all Methodists in the world. It was a remarkable testimony to the general's work that, so early as 1880, its most influential leaders should have been able to arrange, despite considerable opposition, for him to address the conference which that year sat in London. The president, in welcoming him, warned him that they could only give him a limited time in which to speak. What an expression of his sense of liberty and power from on high that the general should at once have begun by saying, Mr. President, in our meetings we are accustomed to bring any speech that seems likely to go on too long to a close by beginning to sing. I shall not take it amiss if you do so in my case. The general laughter with which this suggestion was greeted banished at once any appearance of stiffness from the solemn and exclusive assembly, whose members alone were present. He then proceeded to explain the origin and work of the army as follows. I was told that ninety-five in every hundred of the population of our larger towns and cities never crossed the threshold of any place of worship. And I thought, cannot something be done to reach these people with the gospel? Fifteen years ago, I thus fell in love with the great crowds of people who seemed to be out of the pale of all Christian churches. It seemed to me that if we could get them to think about hell, they would be certain to want to turn from it. If we could get them to think about heaven, they would want to go there. If we could get them to think about Christ, they would want to rush to his open arms. I resolved to try, and the Salvation Army is the outcome of that resolution. In August 1877, we had 26 stations. We have now, in 1880, 162. In 1877, we had 35 evangelists. We have now 285 evangelists, or as we now call them, officers. 
and in many instances they have the largest audiences in the town where they are at work. We have got all those officers without any promise or guarantee of salary and without any assurance that when they reach the railway station to which they book, they will find anybody in the town to sympathize with them. The bulk would cheerfully and gladly go anywhere. We have got, I think, an improvement upon John Wesley's penny a week and shilling a quarter by way of financial support from our converts. We say to them, you used to give three or four shillings a week for beer and tobacco before you were converted, and we shall not be content with a penny a week and a shilling a quarter. Give as the Lord has prospered you, and down with the money. This was followed by loud laughter. When I asked one of my officers the other day at a meeting held after a tea, for which the people had paid a shilling each to announce the collection, the woman captain, to my astonishment, simply said, Now, friends, go into the collection, whack it into the baskets. The whole audience was evidently fond of her, and they very heartily responded. If asked to explain our methods, I would say, firstly, we do not fish in other people's waters, or try to set up a rival sect. Out of the gutters we pick up our converts, and if there be one man worse than another, our officers rejoice the most over the case of that man. When a man gets saved, no matter how low he is, he rises immediately. His wife gets his coat from the pawn shop, and if she cannot get him a shirt, she buys him a paper front, and he gets his head up and is soon unable to see the hole of the pit from which he has been digged, and would like to convert our rough concern into a chapel and make things respectable. That is not our plan. We are moral scavengers, netting the very sewers. We want all we can get, but we want the lowest of the low. My heart has gone out much after Ireland of late, and ten weeks ago I sent out there a little woman who had been much blessed and four of her converts. They landed at Belfast at two o'clock in the morning. They did not know a soul. Our pioneer, contrary to our usual customs, had taken them a lodging. We had said to her, rest yourselves till Sunday morning, but she was not content with this. After a wash, a cup of tea, and a little sleep, they turned out, found a Christian gentleman who lent them a little hall, had it crowded at once, and now, though only ten weeks have passed away, we have stations in four other towns, two in Belfast, and two others are getting ready for opening. Blessed results have followed. The people, we are told, come in crowds. They are very poor. They sit and listen and weep, rush out to the penitent form, and many are saved. Now, Mr. President, I think I may say that it is a matter for great thankfulness to God that there is a way, a simple, ready way, a cheap way to get at the masses of these people. Secondly, we get at these people by adapting our measures. 
there is a most bitter prejudice among the lower classes against churches and chapels. I am sorry for this. I did not create it, but it is the fact. They will not go into a church or chapel, but they will go into a theater or warehouse, and therefore we use these places. In one of our villages, we used the pawn shop, and they gave it the name the Salvation Pawn Shop, and many souls were saved there. Let me say that I am not the inventor of all the strange terms that are used in the army. I did not invent the term Hallelujah Lassies. When I first heard of it, I was somewhat shocked. But telegram after telegram brought me word that no building would contain the people who came to hear the Hallelujah Lassies. Rough, uncouth fellows liked the term. One had a lassie at home. Another went to hear them because he used to call his wife Lassie before he was married. My end was gained and I was satisfied. Thirdly, we set the converts to work. As soon as a man gets saved, we put him up to say so, and in this testimony lies much of the power of our work. One of our lassies was holding a meeting in a large town the other day when a conceited fellow came up to her saying, What does an ignorant girl like you know about religion? I know more than you do. I can say the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Oh, but, she replied, I can say more than that. I can say the Lord has saved my soul in English. Another round of laughter and cheers. Lastly, we succeed by dint of hard work. I tell my people that hard work and holiness will succeed anywhere. Of course, every day's march forward brought with it lessons that were learned and utilized. Not long could the general continue to interview candidates himself, and then forms of application were evolved. The candidate must have every opportunity to understand what would be required of him and to express his agreement or otherwise with the teachings and principles of the army. It was made clear to him or her that, whilst called upon to offer up a lifelong service to this work for Christ's sake, he must expect no guarantee of salary whatever, and no engagement even to continue to employ him, should he at any time cease to act up to his promises or show himself to be inefficient in the work. As for the soldiers, it was soon required of them that they should sign Articles of War before they could be enrolled. These articles formed so simple and clear an expression of the army's teaching and system that the most illiterate in every land could at once take in their practical effect. The articles simply required everyone to give up the use of intoxicants, to keep from any resorts, habits, company, or language that would be harmful and to devote all the leisure time, spare energy, and money to the war. As time went on, the general published Orders and Regulations for Soldiers, a booklet of 164 pages, and perhaps as complete a handbook for the direction of every department of life, public and private, 
as was ever written. Orders and regulations for field officers, containing 626 pages of the minutest directions for every branch of the work, and orders and regulations for staff officers, the most extraordinary directory for the management of missionaries and missionary affairs that could well be packed in 357 pages. At later dates, he issued orders and regulations for territorial commissioners and chief secretaries, containing 176 pages, and orders and regulations for social officers the latter a complete explanation of his thoughts and wishes for the conduct of every form of effort for the elevation of the homeless and workless and fallen, and orders and regulations for local officers, containing precise details as to the duties of all the various non-commissioned or lay officers, whether engaged in work for old or young. Smaller handbooks of orders and regulations for bands and songster brigades, and for almost every other class of agents, were also issued from time to time. Thus, step by step, the general not merely led those who gave themselves up to follow him in the ever-extending war, but furnished them with such simple and clear directions in print as would enable them, at any distance from him, to study his thoughts, principles, and practices, and sock God's help to do for the people around them all that had been shown to be possible elsewhere. With such a complete code of instructions, there naturally arose a system of reporting and inspection, which enabled the general to ascertain with remarkable accuracy how far his wishes were being carried out or neglected by any of his followers. He sometimes said, I would like, if I could, to get a return from every man and every woman in the army as to what they do for God and their fellow man every day. It soon became impossible, of course, for any one person to examine the returns which were furnished by the court. But records were kept, and as the work increased, divisional and provincial officers were appointed, with particular responsibility for the work in their areas, so that in even the most distant corners of the world, wherever there is a registered Salvationist, there is some staff officer to whom he must report what he is doing, and who is expected periodically to visit each corps and see that the reports made are accurate, and that the work is not merely being done somehow, but done as it ought to be, in the master's spirit of love and hope for the vilists. And all this without the absolute promise of a penny reward to anyone. In fact, from the first, the general taught his officers that they must try to raise all expenses of the work in their commands within the borders of the districts in which they were operating. He has always regarded it as a proper test of the value of work done, that those who see it are willing to pay as much as they can towards its continuance. And to this day, the army's resources consist not so much in large gifts from outsiders 
as of the pence of those who take part in or attend its services. Regulations are made from time to time as to the amount any officer may draw for himself, according to the cost of living where he is at work, though a considerable number do not regularly receive the full amount. So utterly, indeed, above any such consideration have our officers everywhere proved themselves to be that to guard against needless sacrifice of health and life, it has been necessary to fix also in each country a minimum allowance which the staff officers must see that the field officers receive. Knowing as I do that many devoted officers have for months together been down at the minimum level of six shillings per week in little places where we have no wealthy friends to help a corps into greater prosperity, I feel it safe to say that never was there a religious society raised and led to victory with so much reliance upon divine grace to keep its workers in a perfectly unselfish and happy condition. Space forbids any description of the heroic labors by which the General and Mrs. Booth, traveling, holding meetings, and corresponding, managed to extend the Army's work throughout Great Britain, so that before its name had been adopted ten years, it had made itself loved or dreaded in many parts. At the earliest possible date in the Army's history, the general took steps to get its constitution and rights so legally established that it should be impossible for anyone after his death to wrest from it or turn to other purposes any of the property which had been acquired for its use by a deed poll enrolled in the High Court of Chancery of England, August 7, 1878. The construction aims and practices of the army are so defined that its identity can never be disputed. Another deed poll enrolled January 30, 1891, similarly safeguarded the army's social work, so that persons or corporations desiring to contribute only to the social funds could make sure that they were doing so. Similar deeds or other provisions are made in every other country where we are at work, containing such references to the British deeds, that the absolute unity of the army and the entire subjection of every part of it to its one general is, in conformity with the laws of each country, secured for all time. And again, a deed dated July 26, 1904, has provided for the case of a general's death without having first named his successor or for any other circumstances which might arise rendering a special appointment necessary. Subsequent chapters will show how wondrously God helped the general to carry on this work in other countries as well as in his own, and we cannot believe that anyone will read this book through without being constrained to admit that there has not merely been the accomplishment under the general's own eye of an enormous amount of good, but the formation and maintenance of a force for the continual multiplication of it all.
in every clime, such as no other leader ever before attempted, or even planned. And then most will be constrained surely to say with us, It is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. End of section 10. Recording by Tom Hirsch.